You're listening to Podcasts with Park Rangers, a show where we explore the importance of our national parks and historic sites with those who live and work in them every day. We'll learn about history, science, and the beauty of nature from a unique perspective. I'm your host, Lucas VK. Today we interview Ranger John Burpee, Superintendent at Lewis and Clark National Historic Park in Astoria, Oregon. So Lewis and Clark are painting a picture of the way west. You know, they, their time here is very short. They, they spend about four months on the coast, but the impact is so much bigger because it helps make another claim to the Oregon country for the Americans. Some of my Chinook and Clatsop friends would, uh, would say that, you know, that, that claim was perhaps not as strong as the, theirs was. It has this lasting effect upon who we are as a nation. And, and I think that's intriguing. It's also just a rollicking adventure. Stay tuned. We'll talk to Ranger John about the two most famous American explorers, Lewis and Clark. This podcast is brought to you by our Patreon community and our fan of the month, Maria Sara. She loves to explore the desert beauty of Saguaro National Park, located near her home in southern Arizona. Thank you, Maria Sara. If you'd like to be considered for Fan of the Month and be mentioned in a future show, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash virtual camper. That's virtual K-A-M-P-E-R. Lewis and Clark, two frontiersmen synonymous with American exploration. Today, we often imagine the two traveling together across North America in a canoe as they record new discoveries in their journals for the sake of science. They meticulously document plants, animals, human interactions, and the lay of the land as they explore the newly acquired Louisiana Territory for President Jefferson. Their detailed records earn them the title the writingest explorers of their time. Journal entries range from the serious to quite funny by modern-day standards. In one such entry, Clark writes of their discovery and capture of an animal in modern-day Nebraska. Near the foot of this high knoll, we discovered a village of an animal the French call the prairie dog, which burrow in the ground. The village of those little dogs is under the ground a considerable distance. We dig under six feet through rich hard clay without getting to their lodges. Some of their holes we put in five barrels of water without driving them out. We caught one by the water, forcing him out. For the sake of science, the Corps of Discovery flush out and capture a prairie dog. They send the animal, along with four magpies and a hen, to President Jefferson that winter. Jefferson is so thrilled with the prairie dog, he keeps it as a pet for a time, before sending it to a museum where the creature would live the rest of his days. The prairie dog's story is far from the only strange tale the expedition has to offer. And if you're like us, you'll find the expedition of Lewis and Clark isn't the straightforward story you may remember from high school. To dig deeper into this expedition, we speak with Superintendent John Burpee. 
welcome to Lewis and Clark National Historical Park. And particularly you're in the Fort Clatsop unit, which is, is the one that's probably most emblematic out here of Lewis and Clark's time. Ranger John has a fascination with history, particularly with forts, which he traces back to a couple particular moments as a child. And along with an interesting background comes interesting hobbies. Odd backgrounds that always lead to these types of positions. When I became a history major at University of Washington, I thought back, like, why do I enjoy history? In two definitive moments I can remember as a kid, and eight years old visiting Fort Vancouver National Historic Site, which is just to the east of here, and then nine years old visiting Fort Clatsop. And the fact that I got to start my career at Fort Vancouver, and, and now I'm here after a odd, circuitous route, it's pretty cool. When I first got here, the thing that really motivated me at Fort Vancouver was the story of the incredible diversity of the peoples. So one of my odd hobbies is French-Canadian voyageur songs. These canoe paddlers that uh, were included on the Lewis and Clark expedition. So I terrify my staff sometimes by getting out there and, and you know, singing French-Canadian voyageur songs to bring uh, a bit of that diversity of the history here to life. That was, you know, so much of my life at Fort Vancouver was dressing in period clothing, being in moccasins, yeah. you know leading tours, singing French-Canadian songs, and couldn't believe I was getting paid for that. During a break from college, Ranger John discovered work with the National Park Service, which would eventually launch his now 20-year career. I was a history major, like many people at the University of Washington uh, who were doing history. I was thinking about a law degree. Um, uh, I decided to take a year off and had moved to Vancouver, Washington, and went and visited Fort Vancouver. And as a kid, it was the Ranger program was so exciting and brought history to life. Um, however, uh, as a 23-year-old, it was a it was a really bad tour. So I was complaining to my folks about that um, that evening. And over the phone, my mom said, well, I hear you complaining. I just don't hear you doing anything about it. So I signed up as a volunteer. Gosh, I, I'm trying to, th I think that was November of 1996. I worked as a volunteer for yeah, six, seven months or so. And then they ruined a perfectly good volunteer by hiring me. During Ranger John's volunteer opportunity at Fort Vancouver, he had a revelation. John realized he could become a part of something much bigger than himself and become a park ranger. It's funny, you know, here I am uh, reaching over and touching my park ranger hat, but um, there was this moment, and I remember it well, sitting in uh, one of the buildings at Fort Vancouver, uh, you know, working alongside some, some pretty great rangers, including the one who gave the bad tour. It was just a bad day, right? Come on, just having this moment of like, wow, I could actually do this and, you know, have not only an occupation, but a vocation, you know, something that uh, I'm so passionate about. And, you know, it's that silly little moment where, you know, you order that first uniform, you get that hat and you put it on and it, it's it's a talisman, you know, to, to something bigger. And, and that's what I've always loved about the park service is that it, it is that, for many people, a touchstone to finding out more about themselves. Right whether it's a visitor uh, who's exploring our parks or, you know, if you're lucky enough to get to work in one. So it's nice that we're sitting outside now at yeah. the site. I I'm wondering if you could describe for the listeners 
the area that we're in where yeah. Lewis and Clark National Historic Park is located. Well, for anyone who crosses the trail, and we get a huge number of people who do the trail, you know, they start in St. Louis and come all the way across. When you when you get out here, you know, you literally are at the edge of the continent, right? Uh-huh. Fort Clatsop, they built not over by the ocean, not up by the big Columbia River, but they chose a spot that was full of all the resources that they could possibly need. Right. Their time here was going to be short, you know, four to five months. Uh, so uh, this area is full of trees. And even though the trees that are growing now aren't necessarily old growth, they're pretty spectacular mm-hmm. in their own right. They have that perfect combination. You know, if you if you walk around this park today, not only are you going to see trees, but uh, there's a good chance you're going to run into elk. And yeah. um, you're going to see many of the things that they saw, the restoration work that we're doing here to try to return it to the scene of Lewis and Clark is what people get to explore today. Yeah. Depending on the time of year you, you come, of course, it can be incredibly cold and, and drizzly and rainy, um, or it can you know be absolutely beautiful like today where there's not a cloud in the sky. Yeah. It is a beautiful day to be sitting down here. Yeah, um, not of bad. Of course, it's not, it's not how Lewis and Clark experienced it at all when they first arrived. Absolutely. You know, when you look at the the time of year they arrived, um, the condition they arrived in is they literally have the the clothing that they have on them is rotted off, right? Mm -hmm. It is, um, they're in horrible shape. They are hungry. Um, They've traded most of their good trading goods. And they also arrive in, in a homeland of a very sophisticated people. Yeah. And I think that's one of the stories that is most interesting to me is. Yeah. So I feel like we may have jumped ahead a little bit, but Lewis and Clark, I think, are names that most listeners will mm-hmm. have been familiar with. They're, they're great American explorers, right? right? So starting kind of from the beginning and this, this 18-month mm-hmm. journey out here, uh, who are Lewis and Clark and why did they make that decision to embark on this this journey out to the Pacific. You know, they, they embody in many ways the, the young republic. Uh, so Lewis and Clark are, are both essentially landed gentry, right? Uh-huh. Um, they are from Virginia families, uh, particularly Lewis grows up not too far uh, from Thomas Jefferson. The families right, knew each yeah. other. Um, Lewis pretty quickly, uh, as a young man, gets involved in the military, you know, goes into the army, has adventures out west. And, and that's the funny part is, right? Out west, we're talking west Ohio. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, has adventures out west. and But really, you know, upon Jefferson becoming president, Lewis is kind of cast as die. He becomes becomes Jefferson's secretary. Right. Um, And as a young man, you know, Jefferson himself is essentially the bachelor president at the time. Lewis is a bachelor, lives in the White House, and they became really boon companions in the sense that they are, as Jefferson's talking about his ideals for the nation, including the ideals that Jefferson espouses, you know, again and again, that science is important, that exploration is important, and that um, expansion is important, and that the best way to counter particularly British commercial interests is to get out there. Pretty early on, Lewis is really pushing for the idea that if this expedition comes about, he should be someone who, who, who should lead it. Right. And Jefferson okay. places a huge amount of trust in a fairly 
young man to be able to take this on. There's multi-purpose, you know, purpose, right? It comes down to things like um, science, exploration. Um, you know, there's even evidence that Jefferson was hoping that Lewis would bring back information that there were mammoths still roaming in the West. Mm. <laughs> and that those mammoths would be so much more impressive than elephants in other parts of the world. Proving yeah. that America had just as good, if not better, than other parts of the world. From an early age as a young man, I think Jefferson had his, his eyes on the West. Yeah. Whether it was for the more personal wealth aspect or it was the idea of this is something special that uh, this young country could be involved in. Of course, having that ability to, you know, purchase Louisiana um, yeah. uh, added a little bit of impetus to the push to go west. Okay. So this was post-Louisiana purchase, and um, where does where does Clark enter the picture? Uh, it was in St. Louis or so that they kind of met up to yeah. begin this expedition, right? Absolutely, and they were both army men and, and had served as officers together. In fact, at one point, Lewis had served under Clark. Um, and for Clark, you know, the younger brother of a Revolutionary War hero, I, I think the enticements of doing something so special as literally crossing a continent uh, probably were pretty welcome uh, yeah, com- uh, to his ears. Yeah, I'm sure. Because again, unmarried. Yeah. Uh, if you're going to do something, uh, you know, like, you know, cross a continent and potentially lose your life, probably good to do it when you're a young man <laughs> who, you know, isn't beholden to uh, uh, much else. So, right. Um, the friendship they strike up is... Pretty amazing. In fact, it's so strong that any time someone says Lewis, automatically it's almost a knee-jerk reaction. You say, and Clark, right? Yeah. Lewis and Clark. <laughs> and of course, they're the you know the driving force and the, the daily command of it. But what I love about the core of Discovery is, is that it's 33 different individuals that, that make this work, and they all have their role to play. And So this core of Discovery was yeah. an army unit that was yeah, that yeah. started off. With the express purpose of of journeying westward, absolutely all the way to the Pacific. Well, and it's funny because today, if you you drive Lewis and Clark National Historic Trail, and there's always going to be the signs with you know one pointing the, other, and they've got a, a raccoon skin hat on, and and mm-hmm. it gives this idea that it's just a bunch of like mountain men, or it's it's a ragtag group of individualists. Yeah. Kind of like the it, fur traders who had yeah, been out here. Yeah, perhaps, it's, it's it's much more a military outfit than anything else. Yeah, there's a command structure that uh, you know, Lewis is captain. He's nice and calls Clark captain, even though Clark actually wasn't given a commission as a captain. He was a oh, lieutenant. Okay. Um, but early on, Lewis makes the decision that he would refer to Clark always as a captain. They were co-leaders of it. Okay, have um, that solidarity between the two. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, it's got to be kind of lonely, you know, sure. being the only officers on the whole expedition. Um, so there were 30 men on this expedition, you said, right? So there's a larger number. There's uh, we, we talk about 33 on the expedition. Okay, that initially um, set off? Well, a larger number. And, and the, unfortunately, as, as great as the journals are, we've got questions as to how many actually. Right. The idea that the first bit of journey from uh, Camp River to Woods, uh, you know, from Illinois, essentially, so right across from St. Louis, yeah. that first section of the journey uh, was up to Fort Mandan. And they Which needed, is a fort that 
they built actually to, right. to winter up that way, right? Which or? is fascinating when you look at it in comparison to Fort Clatsop because they build it right next to, uh, you know, the, the native peoples of the area. Whereas oh, Fort do. Clatsop is kind of built aside and there's, there's a lot of historical speculation on that. Yeah. But that first push up the river is when they still have the keel boat. Okay. They have the, the supplies that they're going to need to live through that first winter. So it's, it's significantly more work and more people. Mm-hmm. Um, but when they actually kind of head west from Fort Mandan, there, there's essentially 33 people in the, in the party, okay. starting with the captains and sergeants and enlisted men. Um, so there were some defectors of a sort or just those who decided to go back after that first winter? No, it was, were... it was by design, okay. uh, by, by Captain Lewis's design, that they weren't needed. Now, the funny part is when you look at some of Jefferson's initial writings, he's you know, saying, like, you'll lead a party of 10 men. Hmm. This will only cost $2,500. And, of course, <laughs> you know, things get it bigger. Grew, and, yeah. uh, you know, sending a party of 10 men, particularly past, you know, the, the Native groups that were most feared, like the Sioux, uh-huh. was really probably potentially asking for trouble, at least from the, the perspective of the of the captains. So 33, but it's not all military people. They, they have, uh, you know, hunters and they have um, a couple of folks who are translators, including Toussaint Charbonneau and, and his wife, Sacagawea. Uh, right. um, they are part of the journey and, and particularly Chicago way approves to be an incredibly valuable member, but also a great symbol. Nobody's sending a war party that they're sending along one woman with. Right. And, yeah. and so for a lot of the tribes, they recognize, okay, these people come in peace. Yeah. Um, so this is an iconic figure of peace even today, actually. Oh, ab- absolutely. And, and we often refer to her, I guess, as Sacagawea. Yeah. Or yeah. there are different pronunciations, but she uh, was. The, one of the great things of reading the journals is being very much open to the fact that there may not always be standardized spellings. Right. <laughs> and Sacagawea, which is the pronunciation, you know, more preferred by you know the descendants of her people, mm-hmm. um, uh, she. She gets spelled many different ways within it. In the journals, yeah. In the journals, but yeah. creative spelling was was par for the course. Um, this is still my favorite little factoid, I think, is that Clark spelled mosquito 27 different ways in the journals. Um, <laughs> says perhaps the fact that he mentioned mosquitoes that many times, some of the hardships of the, the journey. But those folks, those expedition members, are surprisingly diverse. There are, you know, French Canadians like Toussaint Charbonneau and there are Métis, people who are mixed ancestry. And then there are Americans, which sounds like can be just a homogenous group. But of course, these are members of the United States Army. In addition to nine young men from Kentucky is the phrase, there are people that really represent all of what at that time was the United States. Yeah, very young nation, but Young nation. Primarily young men mm-hmm. from diverse backgrounds. Now, in addition to all the men mm-hmm. who went on the journey, there was a, there was a dog that went as well, right? So, <laughs> one of the things I'm trying to track down right now is when Lewis is in the process. So, even before the journey starts, right, mm-hmm. there's a process to get ready, and he's, he's he's getting supplies. He's going to Harper's Ferry to get rifles and his his iron framed boat, and uh, spends time in Philadelphia where he's where he's uh, gathering knowledge. Then he also in Pittsburgh, he gains the dog. There's okay. a dog that 
you know, I want you to imagine early 1800s, um, you know, it shows up in the journal. He spent $20 for this dog. That's like a month and a half of, of yeah, that's a huge pay for, for him. that. Yeah. yeah. In fact, you know, he's a Newfoundland, you know, it's a, a new fee. This is a big dog. Uh -huh. um, this is a dog that garners some attention. Although we do know from uh, at least one source of oral tradition that um, the dog was pretty impressive so much so that moment that, that, he be, you know, becomes the the member of the expedition. Um, you know, shows up again and again, scares off a grizzly, uh, diverts a buffalo stampede that's going through camp. Uh -huh. um, turns out, you know, Seaman, as as his name was, was was as an important of uh, a member as he shows up in the journals more than some of the enlisted men do. So. Yeah, it's a, a valued member of the team. Yeah, very well. much so. And then there's one more member that plays a surprising role again and again. And some people don't say a member because he was enslaved. Captain Clark brought along, uh, as, as he refers to him, my man York, um, and he, he was enslaved. He's, he's one of the more intriguing members of the whole story because at a time where he likely would never carry a rifle <laughs> back on Clark's land, but he does on the expedition yeah. shows some pretty good prowess as a hunter uh -huh. the the uniqueness of york um the fact that he's african that he's he for many of the natives he was such a curiosity that he kind of plays an interesting role you know they're showing off curiosities right yeah lewis buys so it helps perhaps win over the natives yeah, absolutely where otherwise it may not have happened uh, amongst the the mandan there's this pretty vivid journal entry that they're amazed by him that they rub his skin to see if the color will come off <laughs> and I, I wonder how did that make york feel we don't know, because uh, that's the other thing, is we're limited to to a handful of journals um, yeah. and, and oral histories, you know, that have been passed down by the tribes. Mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, there's a reason history rhymes with mystery. <laughs> it, it's, it's one of the mysteries. How did that make York feel? How did it make York feel that at the end, he's not given his freedom? Really? Eventually he is. Okay. But... We spend a little time speculating about that. You know, here's a guy who did everything everybody else did, made this journey, and at the end, he's put back into chattel slavery, essentially. Wow. Eventually, Clark does free him and gives him a team of horses to be a, essentially a stevedore. Okay. But um, he's, he's one of the more intriguing people that I think a lot of people can, can relate to that story a little bit. Right. That he's, he's different, yet he did the same things. It's it's important to remember that it's not just Lewis and Clark. It's it's all these folks. So large contingent of military, uh, a large variety of, of other folks from different mm -hmm. cultures going on this journey. Uh, let's talk a little bit more. And I know we're kind of painting it in broad strokes, mm -hmm. marked with little stories. Sure. But um, the broad picture here, they set off with rather large boats. Mm -hmm. But you mentioned just a bit ago hitting the Rockies. Yes. That changed dramatically the way they approached this voyage westward, didn't it? A absolutely. In fact, the, the idea, when you read Lewis or, or Jefferson's instructions, mm -hmm. the instructions that he writes to Captain Lewis about really what the purpose is, is finding this easy route to the Pacific, right? When you read the 
disappointment as they look upon miles upon miles of peaks of of mountains that it's not just go up the missouri cross this one mountain and then you're in the columbia yeah so um, they went up the missouri yeah. they they hit kind of the northern rockies in what's mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. Uh, montana yeah where they yeah. were that far north yep. right okay yep montana and slipping over into idaho right and and from there it's you know, horses and a lot of walking, uh-huh. eventually getting across after some pretty harrowing times, getting across into what today we call the Columbia Plateau amongst the Nez Perce. But uh, right. first it was that whole idea of getting horses, you know, uh-huh. um, horses at least these modern horses are non-native to the continent, but they had spread literally like wildfire, um, uh, you know, both through trading from the Spanish and then just as horses got wild and, and, and moved out. And the Shoshone, and there's where the, the beauty of bringing along Toussaint Charbonneau and his teenage wife, uh, Sacagawea, was so important. Right. This quirky moment of, of American history that everything could have been different where when they finally meet up with the Shoshone, they have difficulties. First of all, they're translating through multiple languages to get down to it. And the last language is essentially going from Toussaint Charbonneau to his wife who had been a young girl as a Shoshone and had been through a raid, basically had been pulled out of the Shoshone and taken with this raiding party back east and eventually marries this man, Toussaint Charbonneau. There's this amazing moment where she's translating and she looks up she realizes she's translating to her brother that she hasn't seen in in you know quite a few years and that probably more than anything else helped them get those horses to get up over (laughs) the the mountains And, and and they they have that amazing you know just happenstance of history yeah um how different it would have been if that familial connection yeah 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 who would have you couldn't write a uh, movie script. <laughs> you know, if you wrote that in a movie script, that you know, someone would go, "Oh, that's too convenient." Yeah, you know? right. but I'll, but I love that about it, and it 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 creates this you know thing where this young girl, because we're talking young, we're not talking late teens. She's young, mm-hmm. right? Who, as an even younger girl, had been you know, stolen from her people, taken uh, to the east, and then not only that, but gets to see her homeland again. But then she leaves it and continues on the journey. Yeah, wow, that had to take some devotion, dedication to the... I am amazed by that. I don't yeah. know if I could have done that. But, I, you know, it's speculation. Why did she do that? You know, maybe there was, you know, this love between her and Toussaint Charbonneau. The fact that she had a child with Toussaint Charbonneau, ah, okay. the youngest member, as Clark called him, uh, you know, Pomp, a little Jean-Baptiste, Jean-Baptiste, you know... Um, literally was when they when they headed from Fort Mandan was was a month old <laughs> just I can't imagine carrying a one-year-old across the country oh yeah it's tough enough flying with a one-year-old I can't <laughs> imagine uh, carrying him across the country <laughs> yeah. but she continues on with him and when they eventually get to the Columbia River and, and they move quickly down the Columbia River and they get out here there's an amazing moment where She's traveled all this distance. Many of the men have been to the ocean. She still hasn't really seen the ocean. And and she gets a moment where the men are heading to the ocean because there's a whale that's washed up. And she asks to go to the ocean. And I, I just think that that amazing journey that she 
goes on throughout that entire portion of her life is something that I don't know. I, I can relate to that. Uh, you know, yeah. going a little, little further, going, seeing something new. And it sounds like she was pretty thrilled to be able to get to see the ocean. Amazing expedition, which I guess is why it's captured mm-hmm. the imagination of the American people for so long. It's, um, it's incredible to me that they were actually able to navigate in this way mm-hmm. through multiple waterways, mm-hmm. staying pretty much well on course westward yeah, throughout. Yeah. The fact that they do, and that they actually keep really accurate maps along the way. They do, yeah. And journals that tie in, you know, there are spots on the Missouri where they, they talk about leads available here. And hmm. and really what they're doing is they're, they're painting a picture of the way west. You know, they their time here is very short. They, they spend about four months on the coast, but the impact is so much bigger because it helps make another claim to the, the Oregon country for the Americans. Yeah. Of course, 1792, the first non-native person that we know of, at least, that crosses the bar of the Columbia River is an American by the name of Robert Gray. And, and those two events really help cement some of the American claim to this part of the world. Some of my Chinook and Clatsop friends would uh, would say that, you know, that, that claim was perhaps not as strong as it should have, uh, or as the, theirs was, Naturally, but yeah. um, it, it's, it has this lasting effect upon who we are as a nation. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's intriguing. Yeah. It's also just a rollicking adventure. <laughs> a lot of amazing tales to be told through this, just yeah. the 18 months in getting here, much less the overall Absolutely. journey, which was two and a half years worth. Of, yep. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's that very nature of, you know, what later we'd call manifest destiny, all this, you know, this idea that the American civilization is going to push across the continent. And I think that's, that's really the other side of the story. And that's where we, we sometimes, I think, struggle telling the story is that mm-hmm. as much as it's a story of a rollicking, you know, it also is, the, the nexus for change for a large and, and complex civilizations. Um, right, yeah. It's a harbinger of, of challenges to come for many of the native peoples. Um, you know, from, from this, you know, there's, there's some evidence that disease spreads along the way. Even with Lewis and Clark, it's, it's the wave after wave of, of people coming in from people on ships, Lewis and Clark, uh, the early fur traders, um, ships coming in with the early fur trade. The fact that there are still people who are Chinook and who are Clatsop and carry on their, their traditional you know, beliefs and, and practices that are still on this landscape is, I think, one of the more incredible stories. There's a lot of interesting things that come from Lewis and Clark. And there's, there's some sad things that come from Lewis and Clark. Yeah. And making sure that that balanced story is told is, is I think, one of the challenges. But that's what's kind of fun about interpreting history is that it is the perspectives and that, you know, we, we get this chance to, to help people think deeper about history. And that's the reason I love being a park ranger. There was something else that I, I wanted to bring up as part of their expedition mm-hmm. because they were encountering a lot of these native mm-hmm. people and they were largely received very well. Right? Generally, you know, there, there are a few moments of, 
of tension. Um, so there are, you know, stories that leave legacies that are, it wasn't all about a fun rollicking uh, adventure. Right. Um, if you're looking from the less Anglo-centric exactly. side of things. Yep. Certainly. Yeah. Yep. The very tales of here, you know, like I said, they pretty much build Fort Mandan right next to the people, right? Uh-huh. Here, uh, when you look at their map, Fort Clatsop is pretty far from the main Clatsop village. Of course, they're definitely away from Chinook proper who are across the river. Now, the Clatsop were actually, that was a tribe here. A, so a it tribe. was so named because of the nearby tribe. Exactly. Right? Yeah, just yeah. as they named Fort Mandan after the Mandan people, they yeah. named Fort Clatsop this, you know, first U.S. Uh, military fort west of the Rockies and all that. But one of the things, like I said, they arrive here and they find a very sophisticated culture that mm-hmm is already at kind of a crossroads, right? You got the ocean, you got the uh, interior with the river, you've got north and south, the the Chinookan peoples. And when I say Chinookan, both the Chinook and Clatsop and, uh, you know, the Wakakum, and there, there's a, a large kind of a number of peoples. I'm, I'm simplifying. With, yeah. But they are people who are already used to trading. Then they have the struggle. When you read, particularly Lewis's uh, journal, you can feel his frustration that, you know, they don't have much left, and these people that don't trade for these things. There's an amazing moment where Sacagawea has a, a blue uh, beaded belt, and uh, she gives up this belt so that he can get this uh, coat of uh, otter skins. And then as they're preparing to leave, and they're miserable, right? It's cold, it's rainy. They have a slight hope that they're going to have a trading ship come into the river and they can resupply. Uh. That doesn't happen. They're ready to go. They've lost one of their canoes, uh, probably in a tide. As the tide came up, it wasn't secured, and it washed out, and they can't find it. And they need a canoe. They need a canoe. They're desperate for a canoe to be able to get back up the river. And they attempt to trade. And the Clatsop say, no, you don't have enough to, yeah. Yeah. A a canoe is an amazing thing. And a a canoe made by, you know, one of the peoples around here is a living thing. You know, it it is, it is a valuable thing. Yeah. Passed down through generations as we heard. It's a spirit. Yeah. It's, it's, it's probably the worst decision, uh, at least from a modern perspective, is they steal a canoe from the Clatsop. Oh, really? One of their last acts here is they steal a canoe from the Clatsop. That probably didn't sit well, did it? That likely didn't sit well. Um, Soon thereafter, they they run into another Chinookan group who are coming down saying, hey, we understand you need a canoe. Now we're good. So, you know, they they potentially could have traded for that canoe, returned the other. Lewis justifies it in his mind that, you know, one of the things he says is that the Chinookan people, you know, that's kind of an honor thing. Like, you know, you use other people's stuff. It's it's more of a communal thing. Mm. But that that leaves a lasting legacy as well. Yeah. One of my favorite things is to stand in the fort, talk to people, talk about that moment of leaving. You know, they they essentially pound up uh, a piece of paper that says all the members of the expedition written on it. Yeah. As if they're, you know, staking their moment, you know, their claim to fame. And then they hand the fort over to Gaboy, the the Clatsop chief. Ah. And and I have a lot of visitors who go, wow, what a nice thing that was. They handed that over to him. And and I I, I kind of, you know, think in my mind, and I usually say, well, if you've ever been into a Chinook and Plank house, you'll realize that 
this really was a shack compared to what the Chinook were used to. Yeah. And sure, Gobway does use it as a hunting camp. Okay. And it is a, it is a sign, but ultimately, you know, they stole a canoe. <laughs> and that, <laughs> that, that leaves a, a lasting legacy as well. The fact that they were, and, and they even talk about the, the peoples here being so open and, and at the same time that they're not complimenting them, they're complimenting about how friendly they have been to the, the core. Yeah. It's, it's a much more complex story than I think most people get on a quick visit here. And, and that's our next kind of life here is, is taking a look at these early 1990s exhibits and how do we, how do we bring something more meaningful? Uh, yeah. And that's, that's what we're in the process of now. Oh, okay. So one, one of the things that is pretty exciting because, you know, like I said, when I was nine years old visiting here, it was 124.9 acres surrounding really the replica fort is that the park has expanded. Right, so we're, bicentennial. Here, we're mm-hmm. here at the Fort Clatsop, but it's just really a, a piece of yeah. the overall National Historic Park, which has yeah, abs- absolutely. several sites. It's, it's lots of different sites that we're attempting to preserve and, and tell the stories. And for the people who are crossing the trail today, you know, uh-huh. they can spend quite a bit of time here. Uh, if you're really into the Lewis and Clark story, you can spend a lot of time uh, yeah. seeing these sites. Because Lewis and Clark themselves spent a good bit of time in mm-hmm. this area. Yep. Four months alone at the yep. the, uh, the fort here, right? Yep. Yep. Okay. And and left probably a month earlier than they initially had planned to, but oh really? Um, they were just ready. Um, yeah. So they could have stayed here a, a month longer, but they were ready to get home. Oh yeah, I can yeah. imagine. This mm-hmm. was only half of the journey. Yep. And getting here. Yep. yep. I, I love uh, locally, there's a, a bit of a thing where people talk about the end of the trail. The folks in Cannon Beach where that, that whale washed ashore yeah. say they're the end of the trail. The seaside folks say they're the end of the trail. Um, the Long Beach uh, folks uh, where, you know, they walked up uh, the peninsula. Say, but in reality, you know, it's, it's tough to say where it started and ended. Mm-hmm. Um, and symbolically, maybe it doesn't end ever you know and I, I think about that quite a bit that this this story of this exploration that inspires a lot of people to drive you know thousands of miles yeah. uh, to come spend a, a, a decent amount of time with us that you know they're exploring too it's 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 maybe somewhat symbolic of the the, the american character i don't know but it, yeah. it, it touches a lot of people that spirit of exploration mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. speaks to a lot so what can we learn, do you think, from Lewis and Clark's expedition? Hmm. I, I, I think quite a bit about, you know, the resilience that they showed in, in that, you know, getting across here, doing that forethought and planning, getting all the way back, I think says a lot about uh, perseverance. Sure. Um, yeah. And it, again, that idea that, you know, we're all on a journey of some sort, that, when Lewis and Clark most had their, their biggest difficulties, um, they just didn't have the, the option to give up. And, and I think there's a lot to be said for that. The Kind of the moral of the story, though, is that everything we know about history is far more complex uh, in reality. And that there are multiple perspectives on it. And that, you know, the Lewis and Clark, because they are so famous, of all the American explorers, probably the most famous in, in many ways... Not many people have, you know, entire 
nickel sets devoted to them as they did there in the bicentennial um, that that they're a good jumping off point for understanding american history in a, in a deeper way yeah that reading some of the more kind of laudatory books may lead to also taking a look at the fact that there's multiple meanings to lewis and clark uh-huh. i think that's that's the value of this place occasionally not very often but occasionally i run into uh, a visitor who literally is reading their way across the country and using the lewis and clark journals to 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 lead them on this journey wow. and the power of place it's uh, what i think national park and of course it was miserable it was rainy um I was wearing moccasins because, you know, that's that's what you do. Um, the power of place that a national park like this provides, there's something magical about being in the place that it was done. Yeah, the setting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Absolutely. So what do, what do you hope that visitors take home with them after visiting hmm. Lewis and Clark? Um, you know, the, this is a funny site because, you know, the, the main building most people come to see isn't the original building, right? Ah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, it's a it's a wooden structure. You know, the original was a wooden structure that was built in a hasty manner to last only a few months. Right. And you know, as as people take their photographs and as they they attend, you know, a, a musket program or go out kayaking with a ranger, I, I hope they they take away that sense of awe that our history is is both at once grand. Because what could be more grand than than leading a you know this type of journey across the country? Yeah, pretty epic. But it's it's also individuals' history, and and that we are all part of this this grand story that is is part of a larger story. This the story of of who we are as a nation, and and Lewis and Clark is one of those touchstones of our American history. And I hope people walk away just thinking deeper about the history. Yeah. Not just collecting a, a quick memory, but putting themselves within a context of history and understanding that lots of different people have different perspectives on it. Right. And that's okay. That, that's, that's what these parks are about. Cool. So what feelings come up for you when, you when you think of this site, when you think of Lewis and Clark National Historic Park? You know, have, having that early memory as a kid, and even though this is... Fort 3.0, as we talked about, <laughs> 1.0 being their fort, 2.0 being the one that stood from 1955 to 2005, and that's the one I remember as a kid. But stepping in on a cold winter's day when I first got here as superintendent, um, immediately being transported back to being a nine-year-old, uh-huh. the smells, the dampness of the wood, the the feel of the place, the look of the place, you know, for me. It feels a lot like coming home. But my understanding of it as a nine-year-old, or even as even as someone who's involved in history in the Pacific Northwest, uh, even as, you know in my 20s, just a, the feeling that more than anything comes back is just the heaviness of the history. Right. That everything I thought I understood at one time, while not inaccurate, isn't the whole story. And that's where I'm really motivated now is to, to learn some of these other perspectives. And more importantly, try to get people who with the other perspectives to tell their own story here yeah. and their own connections. And, uh, so deep sense of pride in the staff, amazement in the beauty, um, but heaviness that 
there's there's a lot more that still can be done here. Yeah, yeah. there's a weight to the history mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear you. And every nine-year-old kid who walks in may be a superintendent someday. <laughs> and making sure that their visit inspires them to, you know, potentially uh, follow this as a, a vocation is, uh, I think about that a lot. Yeah. 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 So why does the national park system as a whole resonate with you? Why do you feel it's important? Yeah, it's, it's it's funny because I've mostly have worked in, in traditionally what are seen as history sites. Sure. Although I think that's a, always a funny thing because you know, this history is set in nature. I mean, Lewis and Clark were here writing journals, describing nature and all that, Mm -hmm. you know, and I've stepped to the edge of the grand Canyon and realized, ah, You know, you you see that and you go, I get it. Okay, yes, that is a special place. What I love about the national park system is that for anybody out there, you can find something that you can connect to. Uh-huh. Whether it's just that that beauty of, of Yellowstone, or you know, or you know, for those who are looking at history, and that the park system represents, you know, one of the you know great writers, you know, Wallace Stegner, describes the national parks as America's best idea, which is great. Although Mr. Jefferson probably would you know say that his writings were probably you know more about <laughs> America's best idea, the Declaration and whatnot. What you know when we talk about America's best idea, um, what the national parks are, so often it's we're trying to be celebratory, right? Yeah. But I think what he's really talking about is sure we've set aside these places for for amazing people, um, and as as we've set aside these amazing places. We're also doing a better job of making sure that we're telling all the stories. And I look at some of the great work that's been done to expand telling stories that are not always easy stories, not always the happy stories, but the ones that still define who we are. Uh, I love that about the national park system. If you can't find your place in the national park system, I'd be amazed um, because there's there's a story that will resonate with you. And, and I, I love that, that very idea. You can find yourself. One of the moments I had not too long ago, um, just walking down by the river, a soldier or recently, uh, you know, got out of the army and he was traveling the parks. He's a guy who was suffering from PTSD. Uh, okay. It had trips to the sandbox, as they say. Yeah, yeah. And, and he was here because He's visiting a lot of national parks, but he he said he recognized esprit de corps amongst the corps members, and that reading Lewis and Clark journals, he just had to stand where they stood, Hmm. and he said his 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 soul felt lighter. How cool is that? That these places provide that opportunity. That's uh, that one's going to stick with me a long time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty incredible. Sarah and I love to explore stories like those told at Lewis and Clark National Historic Park. To explore this touchstone in history is to discover the varied perspectives this story is told from. We thrive on finding the deeper meanings behind the over 400 national park units set aside, and we enjoy telling those stories through this podcast. It's our epic journey through the parks, and as Ranger John said, We're all on a journey of some sort. Have you ever thought about what your journey through the national parks looks like? Maybe yours is to find those touchstones in history like the Lewis and Clark Expedition, 
or to discover why exactly Wallace Stegner called the national parks America's best idea. Perhaps it's simply to find solace in what we set aside as a nation for the enjoyment of all. Next time you find yourself in an amazing place, take a moment to figure out what drives your journey. The answer might surprise you. Do you think our show is worth $1? Well then head over to our Patreon page. You can get patron-only rewards and all new patrons receive a personalized postcard from us featuring a national park we visited. A link is posted in our show notes or you can visit podcastswithparkrangers.com and click the Patreon link at the top of the page. And to help others find the show, Review us on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Coming up in episode 21 of Podcast with Park Rangers, we speak with a park geologist about the most dangerous volcano in the world, lurking just outside of Seattle. Join us as we travel to Mount Rainier National Park. Even though we interview park rangers, we are not affiliated with the National Park Service, and any views expressed are not necessarily those of the Park Service. We're just fans of the national parks, like you. <laughs>